welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. In this podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Anna Cox, who's a reader and deputy director of the University College London Interaction Centre. UCLIC for short. Anna shares her early career experiences, including being a lecturer teaching a large class and how she and her partner created flexible working practices to manage family and work together. She also talks about the research studies she and her students have been doing on work-life balance as a topic. What I found interesting was the ways in which we're all really different in what's important to us, and she discusses lots of different interesting strategies to try out. She also reminds us about what's good in academia and the degree of autonomy that we can exercise in our work. Anna, thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Um, We first talked about doing this back in April, May last year. Yeah. Because you you were presenting this great work that you've been doing with your research group on work-life balance and issues around that. Yeah. So I... Before we get to that, though, it could be really interesting just to hear a little bit about your background. You've got a, a cognitive science and HCI background from within a psychology discipline. Yeah, so I did um, an undergraduate degree in cognitive science, mm. which was um, actually taught between both a psychology and a computer science department. Uh, and unfortunately, that program doesn't run anymore, which is a real shame. It is, because that's unusual. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and, uh, and we, I think we felt quite special, actually, thinking mm. that we had this. Where was this? It was at the University of Hertfordshire. Okay. Um, so I did that, and then I did a master's in HCI uh, at, at Queen Mary in London, and then I went back to Hertfordshire and did my PhD mm-hmm. there. And is coming to UCL your straight after your PhD? Um, I, I had a faculty position in the computer science department at Hertfordshire at the end of my PhD, so I was there for two years mm. and then moved here then. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been here at UCL? It feels now? like a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think 2004, so that's, that's a good time. nearly 13 that's years a good now. Time. Yeah. Yeah. So... Can you remember back to what were some of the big learning curves in moving into faculty positions and doing this between different different types of faculties and disciplines? So I think when I um, when I had my first lecturing position, um, I so I was in a computer science department and I didn't feel like a computer scientist. Yeah. Um, and they hired me so that I could teach a lot of the HCI stuff and that was taught across quite a few programs and they were really big so I, I what think the classes were really yeah big. so I think in, my, in the very first year I was there I was giving lectures to large groups of students but having to do that twice because the lecture theatre wasn't big enough to fit them all in and so that was a huge huge challenge um, just getting to grips with doing a lot of teaching. And it, it, it's um, 
an institution that is, I guess, primarily a teaching institution. Mm, mm. So, um, so the load was high, and uh, and so there was a lot to learn then. I'm sure. What 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 were some of the best uh, tricks, tips you picked up handling a large class? Um, well, I think I think it was just one of those things that was really difficult because it was a big tiered lecture theatre. You couldn't really do interactive mm. stuff, so you felt like you were having to do this big performance yep. every time. Yeah. And the thing that really sticks in my mind would be when I would go to say something and think, hang on, have I just said this? And it might be that I remember it from five minutes ago, or it yeah. might be that I said it yesterday when in I gave this lecture. lecture. Yeah. And that was always really disconcerting. So did you say in the class all the time, did I tell you this yeah, already? Yeah, that was, but it just felt like that was mm. the thing that happened mm. week after week after week. Mm. Um, but, it, but I suppose I got good training from that experience yeah. in terms of how to cope with that side of the job. Yeah. The, the, the term performance is, is really interesting yeah. for that sort of role in front of that sort of large class in the tiered lecture theatre because I'm just thinking back to the first time I was doing HCI lectures and it wasn't, you know, I think it was 120 but just feeling so nervous and the, and the performance aspect of yeah. it. Yeah, and I also really felt, I mean, I, I can remember doing things like feeling like I definitely needed to change the way that I dressed because otherwise I would walk into situations and people thought I was a student. Uh-huh. And that just could create embarrassment for yeah. everybody. Yeah. Um, and so, like, and I think also because I was so familiar with the institution... I'd done my undergraduate degree there mm. and then my PhD there. Mm. And and a lot of my colleagues had known me all the way through that journey. Um, and actually, for that, you know, with them it was easy, mm. but it was... I felt nervous walking into a room of students thinking they might think I'm a student and I have to try because and... Because they'd seen you before there? I think just... Or, uh, I'm not that tall. <laughs> I was quite young. I didn't, and I didn't. Um, and I had, I'd had lots of situations where, particularly things like when you go and start an exam, and there are invigilators in there who really don't know you at all, <laughs> and they say, they you need to you leave to your bag over there and find your name on the list." <laughs> And, uh, yeah. and I think even now in that situation, I walk in holding my staff badge. <laughs> so it's really obvious. I'm giving uh, all the cues that, uh, that I work here. I also remember you said dressing, dressing yeah. sort of dressing up yeah. to, to play the role. Yeah. I also remember, um, did I wear this last week okay. to the lecture? You know, cause, yeah. yeah, I think I... I think then I probably did wear the same thing all the time. I had like a few outfits that were sort of my uniform. Um, I don't know if I worried about it. Yeah. I think sometimes now I think, did I wear this on the same day last week? Yeah, I I don't worry about it anymore. But in that beginning, in the sort of performance sense, you know, there are these many aspects. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just, it was all just, I think... I felt like I c- 
could do it, mm. but I didn't. I didn't know at the time if I was doing it very well. Um, and there was quite a lot of variety, I suppose, in my teaching. So there were some things that I enjoyed a lot more. So I also uh, would do some kind of com- more sort of programming labs mm. uh, and those sorts of classes. I've always really enjoyed because rather than having to do the big performance, yeah. you get to do more wandering around and yeah. seeing how people are getting on and yeah. chatting to them. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah, that's more interactive. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was talking to Cliff Lampy last uh, recently, and yeah. he was talking about the issues going back and working where you had done your PhD. Yeah. Did you have any of those sorts of experiences? How was that? Um, I I didn't find it difficult. Um, I think because, in part, because I. When I had been a student, I was registered in the psychology department. And then when I became a member of staff there, I was in the computer science department. And although I knew some of the staff there, there were a large number of people I didn't know. So it wasn't exactly seeing you one day with one hat on and the next day with another hat. Um, and, And even the people who I who I did know in kind of both of those roles, mm. um, they never made made me feel like it was difficult. Right. Okay, that's good. Yeah. yeah. And was so was the move to UCL about cre- taking advantage of an opportunity? Uh, so they had uh, so there was a um, a temporary lectureship advertised here, and the position that I had uh, at Hertfordshire was a permanent lectureship. So applying, applying for the role here was really about saying, I really want to pursue a research career, which at Hertfordshire would be much harder mm. to do. Mm. When it's teaching intensive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it felt like a bit of a risk, um, giving up a permanent job to take a temporary one. But I kind of, I think it was for three years, mm-hmm. and I just kind of mm-hmm. thought, well, if in three years I can't convince them that they want to keep me, then hopefully I will have done enough to be attractive to somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Um, and and so it seemed like mm. worth going for. Yeah. And obviously the risk paid off, and they did see you yeah. as attractive. <laughs> Thirteen years later, still <laughs> sitting here. Yeah, I was very lucky actually. My uh, job became permanent reasonably quickly. I think within about eighteen months after starting. Um, So it wasn't a tenure track type thing where you had to prove yourself at the end of three years. So I think that I think that the position was created because Euclid wasn't that old. Um, So I think it started in nineteen ninety nine, and. Uh, Harold Thimbleby was the director, and um, and I think he had he was obviously wanting to grow a group, and so I think that the job kind of came about because they were trying to expand, mm. and had managed to argue for a temporary position, and um, and then and then that it was kind of part of further expansion plans yeah. that. Um, that Anne Blandford, who had then become director, managed to uh, convert my position. Right. Yeah, so it worked out really yeah. well for me, and uh, and I've just been here ever since. Mm. 
So uh, you've also written um, one of the key HCI textbooks on research methods in HCI. Yeah. What's the story around that? So uh, I did that with Paul Cairns, uh, who was at UCLIC when we started doing yeah. that. And, um, and uh, he, I think we, we've done quite a lot of research together and we like working together. So it was partly, oh, let's think of something we could do together. Um, and partly seeing a need mm. for, for it with our students. So we run um, a master's program in HCI here and those students come from lots of different backgrounds. Mm. And so there wasn't any resource then that you could point them to and say, you know, this is an introduction to a whole range of methods you might use for your projects. Or um, So that's kind of where where it came from mm. um and we did uh so we did an edited volume so we kind of went and begged a lot of people to write chapters for us which they kindly did was it a huge effort um uh, getting in, getting people to write to yeah. agree to write the chapters wasn't difficult yes <laughs> um, getting them to deliver the <laughs> chapters that, becomes, <laughs> that can sometimes be challenging um and I think we did, we had an idea for how we wanted those chapters mm. structured. So mm. we had given people guidance about mm. the format we wanted it to use. Um, and so we did a, some editing at the end when we had all of the chapters yeah. in. And then we sort of topped and tailed it. Yeah. We wrote an intro and, a, yeah. and an end chapter. And it was really nice, actually. And, and it coincided with um, both... Paul and I having our first children, not together, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but um, but so I, you know, in one of the in the book, I kind of at the beginning I comment on the fact that he was really good about me going away on maternity leave, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I think uh, you know that was at, at least because he was in the same kind of situation. You know, he. He had a very young child at the time, and so So he knew what I was about to get myself into. So did that mean he had to pick up more of the work because you were there? Yeah, Yeah. so just, you know, when... I think sometimes people think, oh, well, you know, I'll be able to do some things Mm. while I'm on leave, and that's true for some of the time, Mm. but certainly in the early days, Mm. that's quite ambitious. Mm. So what what was the experience like then having your first child and, and... lecturing still uh, in terms of leave and yeah so back to work um i think in the in the uk at that time um you know there were quite good um, maternity leave provision um anyway compared to many other countries um and now it's even better and i think ucl has always been a bit ahead of the curve Mm -hmm. as well in terms Mm -hmm. of the leave that they enable so um i had six months leave paid uh yeah not a hundred percent salary but actually pretty good um quite a lot of it was a hundred percent and it sort of goes down over time um and then I came back to I came back to work but and I and I wasn't in a financial position where we could have had one of us not working or even really one of us going part-time. Um, and I think that 
we'd always thought that if ever we were in the position for one of us to go part-time, mm-hmm. both of us would go part-time. Mm-hmm. But that, that wasn't available, really. So, um, But also, I felt quite strongly that I wanted to be around for my kids. Mm-hmm. And I found it... I found the even the thought of handing them over to someone for childcare to be really quite difficult. Um, and neither myself nor my partner have any family that live close by mm-hmm. to us. So it wasn't like I could have like grandparents helping yeah, out or yeah. anything. Um, so we ag- agreed that we were going to effectively work compressed weeks and so that we could... We would make use of childcare, but we would try to limit that mm-hmm. to a level that we felt happy with. And so, you know, that I, I'm certainly still happy with the way that we did that, mm. but that sometimes makes life quite tricky. Well, it sounds like it could have been quite intense because if you're trying to, were you trying to do a like full time job in a couple of days when yeah. you say quite yeah. condensed? So. Uh, so I would usually, at that time, I would usually work at home one day a week. And on that day, realistically, I couldn't get much work done mm. unless my son was asleep. Mm. Um, and so I would have to catch up at other times. And that might mean doing longer days on other days yeah. or working in the evening and yeah. things like that. Um, and also, neither of us would we're doing this in any kind of official capacity. So UCL is really good about um, letting people work flexibly and yeah. you can work at home whenever yeah. you want. So I was kind of taking advantage of that flexibility and making it work for us. But it, obviously it means that you're shifting the pressure to other parts of the week. Mm. Yeah. Um, how, how long did it feel pressured for? Um... Quite a long time. <laughs> does it? Does I it? Think. Has it stopped feeling pressured? Um, so now we don't do we don't do that because um, both of our children are old enough to be in school full time. Uh, but I do work at home um, a couple of days a week so that mm. I can pick them up from school, That's and lovely. that means I have shorter days. Yeah. So on those days there might be things that I wanted to get done and I didn't and so I have to pick that up some other time Um, so actually now that they're both in school it's easier Mm. because you know that there are at least six hours of the day when you've got childcare Um, but beforehand I guess for the it would have been for seven years that we had you know at least one child Mm. who wasn't at school mm-hmm. and therefore we were kind of doing this real juggling act and I, I think now it's although it's easier in some ways we both travel much more so we I never used to do any traveling when they were really small mm. and uh, now we do we both have to do quite a lot more and that we have a google calendar that says where we are for the next six months that's basically how we manage things so one or other of you is off on work travel yeah and the other one is at home yeah it's doing yeah Mm. so so if James is away then I will try and limit 
how often I'll come into the mm. office for that particular mm. week because I know that if I need to pick them up that I would have to leave really mm. early mm. and sometimes I can do things like have after school care um, but I don't want them to feel like if one parent is away that it totally upsets their week mm. Do you feel like there were particular compromises you had to make to make this all work? Um, you have to, you have to be really, really organised, mm. um, and you have to be flexible in every way. So you know, it's kind of it's called working flexibly. Mm-hmm. And it means that you're taking, I guess you're, we were using the fact that our employers allowed that, but it meant we had to be really flexible, both with each other and around demands that might be made in you by work. So, you know, we can plan who's going to pick the kids up on a particular day, but then if a meeting needs to happen or you need to go away for some reason, then you know, everything has to change. And you both have to be really flexible and mm-hmm. understanding about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the fact that we both have the same type of job really helps because yeah. we understand yeah. the pressures on each other. Um, I suppose some people might think that I um, had to compromise on things like travel but I'd never really done it very much. Mm-hmm. So it, at the time, it definitely didn't feel like it was something I was giving up because I'd never really done it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I didn't... Yeah. And I, certainly when the children were small, it wasn't something I wanted to yeah. do at all. Would you do anything differently now, looking back? Win the lottery? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> no, the research says you're not as happy you know, as you think you're yeah. going to be. <laughs> you wouldn't mind trying it out uh, I, I don't think I would change anything it worked yeah. out well for yeah. us um, I think it's yeah it just it did we did what we wanted to do yeah. and it worked out yeah, so it sounds like the, the whole deciding what was important to you and making use of the structures as you said that were available um, so that you could navigate yeah um, a, a way in between I think so one of the po- the um, policies that's now law in the UK is um, around shared parental leave. Mm. So rather than it only being the mother that would take an extended period of leave mm. after you've had a child, you can share that between mm. both parents. And I think if that law had been in place, we would have done that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you sounds like you did it almost unofficially anyway yeah. in some way. Yeah, I mean, as we got as, as close could. to that yeah. as we could. Yeah, and yeah. while still eating. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Paying the rent. Or, yeah. 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 So which, which sort of connects on to um, some of the really interesting research you and your, some of your students are doing now and, and also as part of a bigger network around balance and work-life balance yeah. and things. Yeah, so... Um, the EPSRC, who's the um, research council that I guess funds most of the HCI mm-hmm. research here, um, they ran a sandpit um, 
which is a meeting that I think lasted for, I think they ordin- they usually last for about a week. Yes. And they have a group of people and, and you create new collaborative teams mm. and ideas and you can bid for some research funds. And they're usually um, bringing together people from very different disciplines who don't normally work together. Yes, yeah, exactly. And certainly, the, so the one that I went to, so they advertised one that was yeah. on this topic yeah. and I went along to it um, and I didn't know anybody else who was there, I don't think. Had you been doing work on that topic before No, then? but it was... Because it was, you, you, you've done a lot of games research. Yeah, and I hadn't done anything on this before, but it was quite interesting because I'd seen the advert and then thought, oh, but that means going away from home. Oh. I'm not going to do that. And actually, it was Anne Blanford who forwarded it to me and said, you, you're really interested in this. You should apply for it. And so I thought, okay, yes, you're right, I should. Um, and actually, it, they were doing a bit of an experiment with it in that rather than have us all in a hotel for a week, mm. we were there for 24 hours to physically meet each other. And then a week later, we did the whole sandpit in a virtual environment, all from our own location so that they were trying to walk the talk a little yeah. bit test that's an yeah. interesting model and it did bring up really it was like really interesting issues so mm. I'd be sat at home uh, spending all day with these people talking about these topics and and they at the end of the day they they kind of kicked us all out of the environment so Five o'clock, they'd say, right, that's the end of the meeting. You all need to go home now. And the only way I can kind of uh, sort of describe this is if you're at work and you decide now is the time to go home, there are kind of rituals you go through, Mm -hmm. like packing your bag up Mm -hmm. and saying goodbye to people Mm -hmm. before you actually leave. And that didn't happen. It was like someone had thrown you out the door. Almost mid-sentence, was it? Almost. Not quite quite like that, but it still felt very abrupt and that you, ha- as an individual, didn't have yeah. control over yeah. it. So yeah. uh, we, uh, we almost immediately adopted this strategy of then Skyping each other to, to say goodbye. Oh, and that's, <laughs> that's really interesting it to is. see those emergent practices yeah. to, yeah. to... That everyone felt that same lack of closure, yeah. social closure yeah. and ritual. Yeah, it was, it was a very interesting experience. Mm. So out of that, um, I think there were three or four projects that were funded mm. and a network. Um, and so uh, I had a project called Digital Epiphanies. Um, and that it was quite, it, it was actually for quite a short period of time, but I managed to find other ways to kind of keep the research Mm. going. And one of those was to um, use a PhD student to kind of align with that work. And so so I'm able to still carry on doing that. So what's a digital epiphany? Well, the idea was... um, So there's this phenomenon called post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. So you ha- you experience something that's quite traumatic in your life and you have this realisation that 
maybe you shouldn't be living your life like this mm -hmm. and that you're not focusing on the important things. And we thought, well, could you use things like um, things that might track how much time you spend working to give people these epiphany moments mm -hmm. that maybe they don't have good balance or maybe mm -hmm. they're not living life according to their values without having to then experience the traumatic event. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the idea behind it. Um, but the, the things that we ended up really, I suppose the things that we looked at that were most directly related to that um, were where we were getting people to use, or we tried to get people to use these kinds of trackers. Um, Wearable trackers or trackers on their it's on, computers? It's on your computer using. screen yeah. that will say, you worked this many hours yeah. uh, and this much of it was productive time yeah. or not productive time or you spent this much time in your email application. Mm -hmm. That would be scary. Yeah, well, <laughs> there, it, it's, it's quite interesting seeing people's reactions mm. to this kind of data. Um, and we found that sometimes... I think a lot of the uh, designers of these things think that what people will reflect on this data and then they decide they want to change mm. and they set a goal and then they change. Mm. And I, I don't even think that's that easy no. to change what you want no. to do. But, I, but often what we saw with people was uh, them thinking, I don't know how to change. Mm. I see this data, but I don't yeah. know what to do about yeah. it. Or, quite interestingly, I, you know, I might have been concerned about how much time I was working or not working, and now I look at this data, and actually I think I'm okay. Oh, that's interesting as well. Yeah. So, um, so what, were the, what were some of the patterns that you saw in working styles and you know, email, times for an email or, or whatever? Yeah. So, so with and were there patterns, or was everyone really different? I think we were really looking at uh, most of the work was done with academics. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's interesting there is that, as I've been talking about, academics often work quite flexible hours. So that means that compared to someone who works a very strict nine to five day mm -hmm. where they know yeah. how many hours they're working, it, you can really lose track of it. Yeah. And so sometimes... I think these tools can be really good for making you realise that maybe you're doing a bit more than you thought or a bit more than you wanted or that the reason your to-do list is so out of control is that this week you didn't do as many hours as you thought you might have. Um, so I think um, some of the, the studies we've been doing looking, comparing people that work in that way, academics, with the professional services staff within the university who are working for the same organisation but they have much more traditional working yeah, patterns. Yeah. They don't make use of technology in the same way in yeah. terms of taking their work home with them. Um, and, and we used um, some kind of validated questionnaire measures that help you understand... <clears throat> Uh, people's preferences and and mm -hmm. styles mm -hmm. um, and you, you see kind of good correlations between what people say they want and the 
the kind of job they do actually mm. so I think mm. a lot of the time people go into a job that facilitates the kind of life that they want yeah the thing that's going to make them happy because yeah. some people like to have those really strict boundaries mm. they like nine to five um and other people like much more flexibility mm. and and pushing someone into a situation that they don't like is actually the thing that often causes yeah. stress that's interesting so there's no standard model. no no and i think that's one of the things here is about perhaps helping people understand what their preferences are, yeah. what does work for them, yeah. so that they can try and create a situation that is going yeah. to support them. Um, but it also means that when we're thinking about, you know, what should an organisation do? Mm. Well, the answer is not have one policy yeah. <laughs> that forces everybody yeah. to do one particular thing. But then on the other hand we see increasingly sort of articles in the media and also research papers about the the number of hours that people are working and, and academics as well being yeah. you know, working large numbers. Where's the balance between that? Because there's something about, yes, the nature of academia, as you said, is about flexibility um, and the flexibility to put, you know, to work all the hours that you can. Yeah. It's really hard, isn't mm. it? I I think I certainly can see that uh, I, I think it's perhaps well known I don't know if, it, if it's really documented but I think it's certainly well known that as people the longer people are in this job the more busy they get mm. they just you always seem to get more stuff and it's no one is ever going to take anything away from you and so, therefore, it's down to you to say no mm. to things. Mm. And that's really hard. Mm. I think lots of people struggle with that. Mm. Were there recommendations that came out? Um, so, st we did some work specifically looking at um, how people handle their email. Mm. And... Um, and when you look at all these kind of things that you see in popular media, I guess... Uh, giving advice about what you should and shouldn't do and what, you know what's the right strategy uh, we we did a study looking at well actually what is the best way of handling your email if you want to try and do it as quickly as possible so we had we asked people to adopt a strategy where either they had to keep on top of their email as it came in mm. or they were only allowed to look at it once a day um and one of the interesting things is that people really struggle to follow those instructions. Either instruction. Yeah, yeah. So um, particularly, I think the people who, when people were trying to minimise the number of times that they interacted with it, they got through their email quicker. Mm -hmm. They're just much more efficient at doing that. Uh, so that overall probably has some benefit and that you're spending less time on email. So there's something about blocking time on yeah. email. Yeah. I, th I think it'd be really hard for many people to say I'm only going to look at email once a day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are people that recommend you look at it twice or three times, but you make those clearly defined times. Mm. And that certainly is the, our data suggests that's the most efficient way mm -hmm. of dealing with it, yeah. um, is 
less disruptive to the rest of your work, but you also deal with the email quicker. Yeah. Yeah. And the, what was the most surprising thing that came out of that research for you? Um, I think some of the most interesting things are some of the things we've been doing more recently. Um, so my PhD student, Marta, is looking at how people use smartwatches and uh, how... So, so one of the interesting things with the smartwatch is it sends the messages you receive on your phone to your watch and you can look and see what that message was and who just sent it. Mm-hmm. But whereas if I look at a WhatsApp message on my phone, if I have those notifications switched on, then you would know I've looked at it. If I look at it on my watch, you don't know. Mm-hmm. So she's been looking at how people kind of like if they realize that and then how they use that to um hide the fact that they've looked at it so it's so in a situation where your boss has messaged you um you could see the message Mm -hmm. but know that they don't know that and so you don't have to reply straight away whereas if you know that they they know you've seen the message. Mm. You might feel pressure mm. to respond straight away. And it's not just that kind of relationship, but people talk about using this kind of strategy with their friends and their relatives. And so that's bringing back more control. Yeah, yeah, about... And, when and, I, and how you respond. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. At, and type, all, what you said there was all about... Time being tied in with the expectations of others that they can see that there's a tick yeah. on, the, on the WhatsApp so they know you've read it. Yes. So it, it's quite interesting when uh, how often we really take notice of those little ticks. Um, I think if you're having a backwards and forwards conversation with somebody, mm. um, they you see straight away that they've looked at it and then it tells you that they've started typing and you sit there and you're waiting but all of this is fine because this is pretty much a conversation. Mm, yeah. But it's when you've sent someone a message and then you're waiting for a reply and it's not coming and it's not coming and it's yeah. not coming. Uh, you, you think, I wish I'd known whether they've looked at this. Have they seen this or not? And then um, those ticks are important because they tell you whether that person is ignoring you effectively or they just haven't seen this yet. Mm. Mm. So all, it, the, all these, yeah, yeah, it's funny seeing that yeah. the strategies that people are adopting to kind of work around the technology yeah. that was put there to sort of help a situation. Yes. So the technology is setting up all of these different sorts of conventions now yeah. for for the backwards and forwards of conversations yeah. and expectations around response, you know, responsiveness and things. Yeah, yeah, about yeah. how quickly you're going to yeah. respond and. Oh. So I remember quite recently yeah. a, a sending a message to someone to find out how they had got on in a hospital appointment. And and I kept looking, like, have they seen this message yet? Have they seen this message yet? And it, and it became very salient that I'm really looking at this queue. Mm. Mm. I was in a meeting yesterday with some people and someone um, 
lifted up their arm and started looking at it and I thought, you know, the meeting's only just started. Why are they looking at their clock? At, at their watch, you know, like, yeah. as, if, as if they're sort of saying, oh, it's time to go already. And I realised that it must have vibrated because then they went over to their bag to pull out their phone and yeah. started talking on the phone. Yeah. So I... That was the first time I'd noticed those sort of cues in, uh-huh. in face-to-face social context about the smartwatches yeah. as well. Which is... It's funny, isn't it? Because that's, I think, on I kind of our normal reaction to seeing someone supposedly checking the time Yes. Um, yeah. is that, oh, am I boring you? Do yes. you want to leave? And we used to have those reactions when people picked up their phone. And mm. and checked it, and mm. it was like, am I not important enough? Mm. And I think, I think now we don't have mm. those reactions so much. It's much more accepted that someone might look at their mm. phone mid conversation. It's all about these evolving, yeah. evolving um, practices. Because remember when the first uh, earphones came out with, or, or the earpieces, whatever for phones, and you, people walking down the street talking to themselves, yeah. and you thought that's a bit strange, but now that's just normal. Yeah, it still looks strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at least, at least you can go there talking to themselves, yeah. and it looks strange. Whereas, oh, they're talking on the phone, and it looks strange. Yeah. Did it? What? Have you taken from this research for yourself? Um, I go through stages of using the tools that can uh, track how much time you're spending on your Mm -hmm. computer. Um, and And I think that one of the things that I find with my job is that there are times of year when I'll be particularly busy. The Kai deadline time, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess some of them like that are very predictable and you know it's coming, but I still never really plan for it, I don't think. Um, but there are other times also when you have a deadline and you'll end up having to put in a lot of hours just before and I I find that sometimes using these tools helps me justify taking a break afterwards Mm -hmm. because I can say look last week I did crazy hours it's okay this week not to do that okay and and to take it a bit easier is that only to justify it to yourself or do you make that visible no just to me just to yourself yeah I think there's it I mean, even quite a long time ago, I remember feeling like is the reason that there's so much on my to-do list because I don't work enough. (laughs) And, And it was very interesting to track how much time I worked and then say, actually, I do enough. Yeah, yeah. And there's just too much work. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I need the evidence. Right, so it's, it's externalised it. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I've, so I certainly do that at times. Um, there are times when I switch off email from my phone um, to kind of I'll remove my work account so that it's not even visible. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's quite easy to slip back into that frequent checking behaviour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So you're creating your own... You had a paper about this. Yeah. Actually. You, you create your own sort of that extra step, that extra effort right. that makes it yeah. a deterrent. So we call we called them micro boundaries. Yeah. Um, and uh, we talk about in the paper about how you, these are kind of little strategies you can adopt to create a bit of friction in the interaction. So that rather than making it super easy to always be checking, yeah. uh, that you just you make it that little bit harder. And it stops you slipping into that behavior that you might not really want to do. Mm. It creates more of a conscious pause as well as the effort to do it. What what might be some other examples of micro-boundaries that that you do or you've seen in the research? Um, So I think we, we had examples of people using different accounts for their email um, so that they can keep work completely separate mm-hmm. from personal stuff yeah. um, and also using different apps on their phone for their, to separate email and then even different devices. So some people have two phones or they might only have work email on their computer and not on their phone. Um, but we've also thought about how this might be able to this might be used in other kinds of situations. So there's been evidence that if you record, you keep a diary of your food, that this helps you to uh, to eat more consciously, I mm-hmm. suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can imagine a situation where you have some wearable camera and it can detect that there's a plate there and it just takes a photo of it and then it analyzes it and it could populate your diary. So in that situation, we see how the technology might remove the remove some steps and make it easier. Mm. This is a lot of the time what we're trying to do with technology is makes things easier. Yeah. But actually, it take away that yeah. really important step that actually makes you yes. conscious of what you're yes. doing. Um, so we had that as an example of something that we could imagine happening. And what, where are you taking that work now? Um, it's one of those little side projects, mm-hmm. the, the stuff about friction. So we, um, we want to try and write up a longer paper. Mm. We've done some work on that. We need to kind of finish that off. I really like the idea of the frictions and looking for where we can create our own pauses or... Uh, or or a little little micro barriers to make yeah. it to stop it being so easy to do some of that stuff. Yeah, I think it, I think we're getting more. There are lots of ways in which we can now automatically track aspects of our mm. behaviour. Mm. So there should be good opportunities to reflect on mm. data that tells mm. us the way we're living mm. our lives. Um. But but making changes is hard. Yeah. So we need to also be thinking about what are the strategies that will help us to make the changes we want to make. And and I think sometimes having these frictions might be the mm. right way to think about Any it. Any other strategies for helping to make those changes? I think with some of them, there's, um, you know, we can draw on the behaviour change yeah. theory. Yeah. Um, but with those, it's often you have you need to be really clear about what your 
goal is and and we can look at how we might be able to embed those theories into technology mm. better mm. um there are a lot of examples of things that say they're going to help you to do mm. things but i don't mm. think they really work but there's something you said before about everyone being quite different mm-hmm. as well so there's there seems to be three three sort of angle three parts of this which is understanding what you want and what your preferences are and what what's important for you and getting some reflection or feedback to understand what you're actually doing and then yeah. thinking about how you might want to change that and then doing that. Yeah. So if we go back to the understanding what your style is, mm-hmm. do you have any tips if people are thinking about that now for how they might go about that? For understanding things like, well... So there are there are tools you can use to help you to understand your work life boundary preferences. Mm. Um, what just questionnaires or something? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So they you fill out this questionnaire and it kind of categorises you as this as a particular sort of person, right? I guess. Yeah. Um, and is this something like I'm happy to work a couple of hours in the evening if? If it means I can go and pick my kids up from school, or is it that sort uh, of? They ask about uh, questions about uh, how important work is to you, Mm -hmm. and how important Mm -hmm. uh, family or Mm -hmm. other aspects of your life are, and then um, and then questions about how how in control you feel about things now, um, and how easy you find it to flip from one thing to another. Right. So that's connecting to the control thing as well, that people are demonstrating that's important with the smartwatch. Yeah. And the managing of the email. Yeah. Okay. So if um, can you give me the link to that and I can add it to the webpage with the notes on the podcast? Yeah. Could be interesting for, for us all to fill in and just see. Yeah. So these are all just different tools to help stop and think and reflect on our own preferences um the feedback on what we actually do compared to what we think we do and yeah and then think about well okay what strategies might you be able to adopt Mm. so some of the uh the work that marta's been doing most recently uh has been around how if you sit down with people and and find out what they're doing and what they would like to be doing or how they would like life yeah, to be. Yeah. What what are the things we can do that help us gain control yeah. again around yeah. our use of technology. Yeah. And uh so she's so she's been running workshops with people looking at those mm. and we will have data on how well they've managed to keep those things up. Great. That's great. So are there things that you... Uh, are you happy with your um, balance now? I think overall, over I'd say I was pretty happy. Good. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't tricky times. Mm. Um, sort of somewhat... So one of the things that I do at UCL is I um, lead the Athena Swan submission and group for the psychology and language sciences Mm -hmm. division and the athena swan is a special initiative to promote 
women in in um, academic in careers. Academic, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was in, originally in STEM subjects only, and now it's more broad across all different areas. Um, and now it has most recently expanded to also include professional services staff and to think about um, other uh, other aspects of equality mm -hmm. and diversity mm -hmm. and not just gender. Um, and, and we had a submission uh, for our... You have to put in a... You have to submit for an award every few years. Uh, and our deadline was last November. And it was an enormous piece of work to do that. And I hadn't... I knew it was going to be big, but yeah. I hadn't anticipated how, how big. big. Mm. And... Uh, and it's sort of, and you know a lot of the stuff in that report is about the the things that the division does to support people to work in flexible ways, <laughs> and, and it just it seemed very ironic that it was taking up so much of my time that you were flexibly working all your time yes. on this report. Yeah. Uh, so, what? How do you recognise for yourself that hey, this is getting too much? Do you, well. You know, sometimes it's really obvious. Like, when I was working on that report, I spent an entire weekend just doing that. Oh. So the, there are things that are really obvious. That yeah. doesn't happen yeah. very often. Um, I, think, I think sometimes you recognise things when the other things you want to do in your life start becoming more difficult to include. Mm. So... You know, if you if you enjoy going to the gym or going running, and you're finding it hard to fit that mm. in, then I think that that's a good that's a good sign. Yeah, yeah. that you need to you need to think about what yeah. you're doing and change yeah. things. Yeah. Um, I think I think you know partners and children will usually tell you. Yes, <laughs> I think they're pretty good <laughs> often at telling. So uh, you should also listen to them. <laughs> so some of the things that you said about you know the working at what you want to change mm -hmm. there's and and the control in that there's only so much that's in our control direct control in academia especially yeah are, are there things that you think we could be doing you know, so that there are things that we can do within our control mm -hmm. what are some of the things that we should be lobbying working towards changing that are broader in terms of the culture or the... Well, I think a lot of the people you've interviewed have already touched on mm. a lot of these things. Um, I think there are many of us who are guilty of kind of writing many, many papers um, and and then and we're kind of create we are creating this culture where that becomes expected. And I think that is that's going to have very negative impacts, particularly on early career researchers yeah, yeah. who now feel that they need to have lots and lots of yeah. chi papers yeah. in order to stand a chance of getting a job. Yeah. Um, and so I think as a community, we need to reflect on that and, and think about different models and there is a lot of people who are thinking really hard about this mm. and working towards um, changing 
how many deadlines there are for yeah. conferences and uh, encouraging people to publish in journals where we might be writing longer, longer fewer papers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, guess we could also think about ch just changing some of the criteria for some of the job ads that we write when we're recruiting as well. You know, and I was just thinking about how do we change the, you know, the expecting lots of papers because that yeah. just seems to be a, a um, thing that's out of control. But you know, is it by each of us when we have an influence on writing a job spec or a recruitment ad to make clear that it's quality and that we're looking for, you know, to try to sort of take that pressure off? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's not just in job ads, is it? Mm. But it's also when we're looking at things like people's promotions. Promotion, yep. um, yeah. And I think one of the things that we would hope to see as a cultural shift in the UK is that, as, is that we would like to see more men take shared parental leave. And I think this that could have a really big influence on people attitudes towards working part-time or taking carers leave and mm. and taking those t periods of time into account when we look at um, in people's productivity yes. over a certain period yes. um, and it you know it probably wouldn't be a bad thing if we we all thought about working less yes uh, and spending more time with the people who we care about yes indeed Indeed. And and was there anything else that you wanted to mention talking? Um well there's there's I wanted to kind of thank you actually for doing these podcasts because oh, I have really, really enjoyed listening to them. Uh and, and I have it's been such a privilege being able to do them. It's been yeah, great. And one of the things that I've kind of notice is how like individual all the stories are and how there are often things that you can take from them mm. which has been which, you know which you might adopt for yourself or yeah. you might try out yeah. um, and I can remember re write, reading someone's promotion application I was writing a reference for it and uh, they described the way in which they uh, had a daily stand-up meeting with their team. And, uh, that, and you know, they, they kind of talked about how this was really useful for um, the way that, that they did their supervision. And I thought, wow, that's such a great idea. I really want to do that. But because I sometimes work at home and I kind of encourage my team also to do that, um, I wasn't sure how I was going to make that work, really. And, uh, and then I discovered that there's this little bot that you can use on Slack, mm -hmm. which sort of simulates this. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we've now adopted that as kind of our daily practice. So every day we, we each have to say what we did yesterday, what we're going to do today, and what's in our way. And I found that really useful for kind of keeping in touch with them yes. in a way and yeah. connected to them in a way yeah. that I didn't feel that I was doing beforehand yeah. and uh, I can spot things I can spot when I have to intervene really quick you yeah. know I suppose yeah. sooner than I might have yeah. done before um, 
And are you doing this as well? You're saying what you did yesterday, so yeah. you're part of it. Yeah, and uh, I think it's... I'm sure that for all of us, when we do it, you want to do it quickly yeah. and you give a kind of edited view of reality. Um, but I think it... I think one of the things that I've always noticed is how, you know, as an undergraduate, you have no idea what a day in the life of a faculty member is yeah, like. Yeah. And even as a PhD yeah. student, you don't really know yes. what it's like. And I hope it gives them a bit of insight into what academic life yeah. is like or can be like. Yeah. So this is, this, is your, this is another example of a reflection opportunity because you're making people stop and think about what they did and what they yeah. planned to do. Yeah. So it's a sort of taking a breath and doing it. Um, but that visibility as a side benefit into what you, know, you for what they're doing mm -hmm. and them for what you're doing because... It's hard to train people. You know, a lot of people have mentioned this, but it, you know, we're often not trained through our PhD to move into the roles that we're doing afterwards. Yeah. And this is a, yeah, you're right. That sounds like a brilliant way for people just to see the million and one small things and big things that make up the day. Yeah. And I think, I think you know, sometimes I'm very aware of the fact that I'll be saying, I have meetings all day. Mm. Um, but other days, when, when that's not the case, I'll be planning to comment on someone's chapter. Or, and so I hope it lets them see why I might be late with something yes. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and to understand the variety that there mm. is in the, in the role. Mm. And also how you might be dealing with your own things that are getting in the way. and Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, if you say, yeah, I think there's been there's been a few of us actually who have had medical appointments or family situations, um, and and just being upfront and honest about those things, mm. um, I think helps people realise that we're not. Uh, superheroes managing yeah, everything yeah. but that these things happen to all of us yeah. and and some days that means you don't get loads done yeah so it's a brilliant idea it is so what time in the morning are you doing this uh it goes i think it triggers at seven in the morning mm. but that's because uh one person said that he was coming to work really early and i wanted it to be in time for him right but it basically will be there waiting for whenever oh, they start. So you're not doing it co-located? You're not doing it at the same time? No. So, oh, through, so, so I was wondering how I was thinking, because I already think about how could I adopt something like that. Yeah. Doing yeah. it at the same time would have been a challenge. So it goes into a single channel on yeah. Slack, and I try to give an emoticon for each one to show that I've looked at it every day. That, that's what I'm trying mm -hmm. to do. Um, and I usually do manage to yeah. do that because obviously it doesn't take very long to yeah. just quickly read through yeah. what everyone's up to. So it's not a big time ask for anyone. No. If you're just saying you know, the quick summary yeah. of. And that also sounds like they're creating more visibility amongst themselves as well yeah. about what each other's doing to support each other. Yeah, and it, it's, it's triggered some really interesting conversations when I've had one-on-ones 
where you know one student will say oh I don't feel like I'm getting very much done compared to x or y um, and I and I think that sometimes you know it's important for us to have those conversations about why that might be yeah. you know that person might be two years more experienced yes. than you and that yeah. really matters yeah. um or they haven't got the stuff going on that you've got yes. going on. Different phase of your research. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. 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 So that, that's a, it's been really, really helpful oh, adopting that. For multiple reasons. Yeah. yeah. Great idea. And that's a great note to probably look at finishing on. Are there any, any things that you would have liked to have talked about or final thoughts? No, I think we, we covered it all. <laughs> So what would be a good academic life for you then? I think I have one. Yeah. We, you know. And what are the key qualities, characteristics of that view? Well, I, I get to spend a lot of time with my kids and that's really important to me. Um, I, and I feel challenged and fulfilled at work. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So I think if you're in a, if you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where you have quite a lot of control over what you're doing at work, mm. um, then that can be a really fulfilling part mm. of your life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So thank you, Anna. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you for having me. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. 